Well, we are back again in the book of Genesis. So if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn there with me now. And so we are basically in the middle of this series, and it's going to go all the way through the end of August. And then in September, we start something new. But for now, we are looking at the life of Abram, or Abraham, as he is now called. God had changed his name in a previous chapter, and um, so now he is the father of a multitude, the father of nations. Abraham is a model for us of what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight. Uh, he is our forefather in the faith, as Romans says. Um, everyone who would share the same faith as him would be saved. And so he is a father in the faith and he provides a wonderful example. So we're just going to walk through chapter 18 here. A very interesting chapter, uh, in some ways a neglected chapter, and we're going to see what God has to say to us and then how we can apply it to our lives today. I'll go ahead and read um, 18 verse 1 so that we can get the setting here. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Actually, let's just go ahead and read the rest of it there through verse 8. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham quickly went to the, into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour needed and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is a seemingly insignificant text, an insignificant story here. But actually, when we start looking at it more and more, we begin to see how significant it is about what the Lord is actually doing here. So you'll notice the setting at the heat of the day. This is verse number one. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Here he's taking an afternoon break, a siesta. He has a large uh, he has a large family. We know at the very least there were 318 able men to fight in this little uh, rescue mission he led a couple chapters back. And then you have the women, then you have the children, then you have the, the flocks and the herds. He's taking care of a lot of people here. And um, if you're familiar with the Mediterranean climate or the Middle Eastern climate, you know uh, how hot it can get in the afternoon. So Hacienda Heights will know, has known, and will continue to know, especially in August, how hot it can get in the afternoon. You know, these people aren't modern folks who have nice buildings and air conditioners. Uh, and so you have Abraham here taking a rest. Obviously, in today's Western culture, we don't really know what this is like. Uh, but many cultures around the world presently, they continue to know what this is like. So we lived in, our family lived in Dubai for a little while. For a few years and some of the companies would actually let their workers go home for their afternoon siesta and then they would come back and so everybody would know at least from this part of the world they would know okay you know they're not going to be focusing on those main things like getting work done 
um, in the afternoon. Instead, they're going to be going home and taking a break there. So Abraham, he looks up, it says. And then he sa- it says there that he sees three men. But we have to ask the question, you know, who is this person who says, whom he says there in verse 3, he says, Oh, Lord. Now, who is this character? Well, it could also be translated, my Lord. But is this like just some sort of title of respect that you might give to somebody who might be uh, older than you? Well, as the passage moves on, it becomes abundantly clear that this is none other than God himself. Okay, now we might think that that's strange living in the world that we live in today where we want, we're very much evidentialist. We want proof. But yet, here, according to God's word, we have proof in that this person visiting Abraham is the Lord, as we're going to go on and look at. It's very clear there. He says, I have found favor in your sight. You have come to your servant. I mean, just imagine that. What is it like for God to visit Abraham in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, to hear have a meal with him. I mean, this is really, it's, it, on one hand, it could be really strange, but on the other hand, let your mind be blown that the all-transcendent God would come down and visit his people, manifest him, himself in such a way, even though we know that God does not have a body, he is a spiritual being, but he manifests himself in such a way where he's able to, as one commentator put, sup with his people he's having a meal with his people here these three visitors arrive what does abraham do he invites them into his house he offers them hospitality and look at all the things that he's bringing there as the the story goes on he says water for you and then also to wash your dirty feet your hot feet he says i'll give you rest i'll give you bread so that you can refresh yourself abraham here is very much a model of what it looks like to be a superb host so if any of you guys are striving to be superb hosts, we have a great and wonderful example. And I am not kidding because scripture here is really holding him out to be a superb host. Verses six to eight. He went quickly. And then it goes, he says, quick is used again. And then he ran and then he stood by them like a good host that he was sort of waiting on them as they enjoyed their meal underneath this tree. Uh, you know, th- these verses, they actually remind me of my mom. <laughs> she was a Chinese Malaysian woman famed for her hospitality. And I'm not kidding. So the friends that we would have as they would come over to our house, um, they always knew that they would be in for a treat. Whether it's like her braided bread, whether it's her like curries, her chicken, everything. And sometimes my friends would even feel like they were being force fed. You know, you have the typical example of the, uh, the, mother, the, the motherly figure who's just piling food, piles of food, you know, one on top of the other on the visitor's plate here. This is my mom. This was my mom. And I'm sure you guys might attest to it. As many cultures still understand what this is like. I did some research and the Mexican culture, the Hispanic culture very much does the same thing. And many cultures around the world continue to do these things. And, and there's a flurry of activity. When the Lord himself and these two people, these angels, as they're called to be men here, Moses is talking. He's rewrites about them in a way where uh, where it's communicated that they're taking the form of a man. But really, they're not men. They're angels here. So there's a flurry of activity. As Abraham is wanting to prep for his honored guests and Sarah is helping him. Uh, So that's what's going on here. 
He's bringing out the best stuff. You know, he goes and gets a calf, and then they go and, and prepare it accordingly. And, and that's huge, right? So I got friends in India, and they're vegetarian, not by uh, philosophical conviction. The meat's just thinking expensive. So then to have a, to have a goat or to have a calf, you know, they're, 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 they're going uh, to great lengths to do this. And this, of course, reminds me of Middle Eastern weddings where it's, it's so incredibly lavish. I only got a chance to go to uh, a local Emirati's wedding and they brought out all of the goods, tons and tons of food. And they knew, of course, that it wasn't going to be eaten all, uh, eaten all up. But yet it, they're doing it to honor their guests. That's what Abraham's doing here. He's an excellent host. His abilities to host is an excellent model for Christian love, believe it or not. Simple thing, a simple thing like hospitality. I mean, Paul himself in Romans says, seek to show brotherly love. And in Romans 12, where he's talking about that, it's, it's an underneath a larger category of showing brotherly love. He says, show hospitality. And then in Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2, now this also let your mind be blown here. The author of the Hebrews writes to them, he says, let brotherly love continue. Of course, hospitality is a subset. And this is what he says. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to sojourners. For thereby some have entertained angels. What is it like to entertain an angel? And then, of course, God himself. <laughs> Entertaining angels. I'm not going to come very much on that passage. Um, but that author, the Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews here has this passage in mind. Now, a lot of people think hospitality is not a big deal. But when we understand that we, too, are sojourners on this earth, that is sojourning through this spiritual desert, this place that fails to provide a safe dwelling here on earth, uh, this place that fails to provide the dwelling that God intended people to have, right? As he created man to be in a good relationship with him, a perfect relationship where there was no murder, there was no thievery, there was no lying. That's the land and the relationships that God had intended his people to enjoy. But obviously that's not the case today because of sin. As Adam and Eve sinned and then the Bible says that through them sin and death entered into the world and we too are born in sin. And so we know that we ourselves do not like at times offering a safe place for people. We would rather turn a blind eye here, rather ignore the strangers, the sojourners who are wandering through our lives. Now, I'm not saying that we should just fling open our doors and, and um, uncritically invite everybody in. But nevertheless, there should always be some desire for us to show the stranger hospitality and care and love. Because very much we are offering that sojourner the community that God had intended originally for man to experience. Christian hospitality is refreshing because it is very much an arm of love, isn't it? Seeking to provide the needs of others with the resources that God has given us. So in so doing, when we offer hospitality here, we are providing for others what God had originally intended to be there. So let me just challenge you here today. Seek to have someone over to your home once a week. 
Just mark it in your calendars that this day I'm going to strive to have somebody over into my house every single week. And if you don't live by the calendar, you know, when you start, when you invite that person over, just go ahead and figure out, okay, the next week, some general time on this particular evening, even though you might not, you know, note down who exactly you might want to have over and what time and what exactly you're going to cook, you're just going to invite people over to your house. And it's going to take some risks to show this type of love to other people. So most people, when you know, when they think of having hospitality over, um, you know, whether it be a stranger or the pastor, you know, they get a little bit ang- anxious. They get a little bit worried. You know, is my food going to be exactly the right saltiness as they would might particularly like it? And you just got to get over that and just think, okay, regardless of if they like it or not, I'm just going to offer this stuff to them, offer myself to them, all my resources, and say, we want to invite you over to enjoy this, and we want to love you in that way. I remember one time, um, me and Melanie, after uh, one Sunday evening, we just said, hey, you know, let's have people over. And our evening dinner literally was like leftover eggs and sausage literally, like that we had made in the morning, maybe. And then leftover dinner that we did not eat from like a couple days before. <laughs> and then something else that Melanie had whooped up like right before. And so you had all, all of these different options here. Now, some people, they might say, like, how can this person invite me over to experience this kind of meal as leftovers? Um, but our friends, interestingly enough, they said, wow, you know what? Because, because Melanie and Jeremy did this, uh, I'm spurred on to just go ahead and work with what I have so that people can be invited over into my house. And she was really challenged by that. So let me encourage you guys. Seek someone over. Seek someone to have over in your home once a week. For the gospel's sake, mind you, for the gospel's sake. It's interesting that so much time here is spent on eating with Abraham. But yet it is. I mean, God in his providence and his sovereignty decided to have these particular eight verses in here where it really highlights Abraham as a wonderful host. And interestingly enough, Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament to have eaten with God. And that, that I think is part of what, a reason why Abraham is called the friend of God. The only person in scripture called the friend of God. Now we know in the New Testament that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But Abraham's title here is called the friend of God. It's very fascinating. And it's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. You can just Google search it. Friend of God, Abraham. And a bunch of, a few uh References will come up. But another reason why so much time here is spent on Abraham, you know, offering this hospitality uh, is because Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawing a stark contrast between the people of God and the people of the world. So as the story progresses, we are going to get to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you guys don't know much about this these cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, they were known for their unrighteousness, for their social oppression against other peoples and their sexual immorality. But most importantly, the fact that they were rejecting God and pursuing themselves. They're wanting to do what they themselves wanted. And so what stands in stark contrast is the hospitality that Abram and Sarah offered God himself. And then in the very next chapter, the angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, here in this chapter, right, God and the angels come in the daytime. Oh, when we move to Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment there, they go in the nighttime. 
where Abraham and Sarah offer great and lavish hospitality to God and the people. Come into my tent, enjoy everything. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, the people seek to, to, to uh, ravish them, to feed their lust of the flesh, really by raping them. So we deal more and more with that next week. Uh, we see, too, that the people of God, the righteous people, are stand in stark contrast to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And even Lot's daughters, they are left at the end of that story um, acting out with the sexuality that they had appropriated and gained and followed from Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's amazing here that we see in these handful of verses that God's people are not just his subjects, but his very friends. He comes to eat with his own people. And of course, we see that pointing to Jesus Christ as he comes to and takes on the very nature of man in order to identify with them. And he's calling people, the tax collectors and the sinners, and he's hanging out with them. He's, he's eating with them. And that's a fellowship meal. That's what's going on there. He's getting to know them. He's giving himself to these particular people. God's people are not just his subjects, but his very friends. As we move on, we see um, what God's intention was in this visit. It's, you know, again, it's amazing that Moses here, he could have just skipped over this hospitality part and gotten to the reason why uh, God has come to them. But he doesn't. He says, look, they're eating together. Look at verse nine. And we see here after the meal's over, what are God's words here? They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? It's a very specific question here. And in those days, the men would eat together and the women would eat together. So Sarah is not present there, but they're eating. And so far, all we know is they say, do as you have said, Abraham, go ahead, go ahead and get this, get, get the uh, food for us. And then all of a sudden we have God beginning the dialogue. Where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham says she is in the tent. The Lord said, there we go. Now we know who specifically this is here. This is uh, the Lord of the universe. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Specific reason for why God here is seeking out Abraham and Sarah. It's to, it's to continue on to, to reaffirm this woman's shaky faith. He, he, he traverses the universe in order to sit and sup with his people and to reaffirm Sarah's weak faith. What does she do? And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Of course, God knows that Sarah's there, right? He knows, of course, that Sarah is there and that he, she is listening. Verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. Look at that. Look at this emphasis. They were old, advanced in years. Not only that, but the way of woman had ceased with Sarah. And she, she can't have children. So knowing those things, knowing that she's old, that she's advanced in years, and that the way of the woman has ceased with her, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Abraham's sitting there, you know, thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Shall I have pleasure? She laughs and she chuckles. So clearly this is not only Abraham's faith here who is shaky, but Sarah herself, her faith too, was dwindling. Um, imagine being impotent and barren. You know, they had received the promise 25 years ago. And so they're trying, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying. 25 years, nothing happens. You have this child born of Hagar. 
a sort of illegitimate heir, but there's no real heir to come from their physical line. So she thinks very much, it is an impossibility, physically, it is an impossibility. My womb is barren, my husband is old, he's worn out. Stresses their situation here. Nothing is going to happen. Shall I still have pleasure in my age given this physical body? So if you guys know sickness, if you guys know illness, you know how it incapacitates you, right? Like imagine when you were the sickest you've ever been and you know that it's an impossibility to get anything to stay in your stomach or something like that. It's it's an impossibility for you to go out and exercise or go run a marathon or go have a lavish dinner here. So those are the thoughts that undergird Sarah's chuckle. You know, he says he's crazy. So here God is calling her to believe in something that is beyond her reason that's based in experience. Here God is calling her to believe in something beyond her reason which is based in her experience. Her experience tells her no. It's in her and then her response is so matter of fact like he's crazy. I'm old. He's old. We can't have children. It's beyond her, isn't it? But it's interesting that it doesn't make it unreasonable. Just because it is beyond her in that particular moment, her reason is based on her experience. It's beyond her. But it doesn't make it unreasonable or illogical or irrational, does it? In fact, given what God has done thus far, as stated in the Bible, that he created the universe, he flung everything into existence, He comes and he visits his people and he cares for them and he loves them. You know, given what God has already done thus far, it is completely reasonable, completely logical. That's Christianity. It isn't illogical or unreasonable or irrational when your frame of reference is God himself and what he reveals in his word. It is absolutely logical and reasonable and rational because God is who he says he is. I got an example for you. Um, our uh, Pastor Rick, who's on sabbatical now, uh, I don't think he would mind you sharing, mind me sharing this to you. But, you know, he came from a difficult, difficult home. And some of you guys know what this is like to grow up in a difficult home where you are mistreated. So imagine growing up in a home where you suffer emotional abuse regularly imagine growing up in a home where you suffer physical abuse regularly verbal abuse you know you see the abuse that your dad flows towards your mom maybe your mom in response flows back towards the dad and then you see how both of them you know the abuse flows downward to you and then you just sort of naturally grow up thinking it is kill or be killed that's just the way it goes so you grow up in that home where you think that you have to, you, that this is what you receive all the time. That's what's absolutely normal. And you know what happens in the heart of the child, unfortunately? The heart of a child who grows up in a situation like that, you know, the heart retreats. The heart is really scared. It's fearful. It wilts. And then you also have the heart that becomes so hard as stone. And it's hard to crack anything, to let emotions and feelings and trust even flow out of that and then so you bring all those experiences to this particular moment for sarah 90 years of experience 90 years of experience going back to this situation 
One day you finally find someone who, for some strange reason to you, actually wants to love you. That's weird. This person genuinely wants to love me and doesn't want to harm me, but instead they want to help me and they're going to give themselves to me and for my own good? It's hard to believe, isn't it? It is beyond reason for a moment, for that particular moment. Like, And then so you, you guys know, I'm sure, what this is like for some people, maybe even yourselves, or maybe you've received it. You know, They test the waters, that person that you love, who's come from that background, they test the waters. This person doesn't really love me, so let me just cause a little explosion there and see, what's, see what happens. Let me just respond in a certain way where trust is established just to make sure that this person actually loves me. It's beyond reason. It is illogical. It is unreasonable because your frame of reference is tweaked. But when you see, when your frame of reference changes and you see clearly, then your life begins to change, doesn't it? No longer is it beyond reason. Your frame of reference is corrected. Your reason then is informed by real biblical truth. And this is God's lesson to Sarah. Her frame of reference is is her physical experience in the realm of the humans. But God corrects it. Look at God's response there. Okay, so Sarah chuckles. It's so matter of fact. Ha! He's crazy. This God. This guy who says that he's going to give me a child even though I'm 90. My husband's 99. And then what does God say? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? (laughs) It's equally as matter of fact, isn't it? Like, why did she laugh? This is me. I'm God. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard, too difficult, too impossible, too wonderful for the Lord? That's his response. So matter of fact as well. Equally matter of fact because his frame of reference begins with himself. And his experience as the Lord of the universe is what ought to define how Sarah conceives of the world. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I bear a child now that I am old? Why such unbelief? Why such cynicism on your part? Nothing is too hard. Or is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, the answer is no. God corrects her thinking, reminding her that her frame of reference for all of life ought to be him and his word. It's amazing here that God comes down to eat with Abraham and Sarah. And it's in the larger context of moving towards this other thing, which is reaffirming this poor woman's faith that's shaky. You know, yes, is God going to move over to deal with this expansive stuff of judgment and righteousness? He is. But right here in this in these few verses, he's lifting up this woman, Sarah, even though she struggles in her faith to believe once again that I am who I say I am, according to God. That's what God says here. The conclusion of that section, he says, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. That is when she is ninety one. And Abraham is 100 years old. And Sarah shall have a son. But she denied it and she laughed. She said, I did not laugh. She says this to God. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I mean, just like Abram, Abram, number of chapters back, he feared for his life. And so when he went down to, to Egypt, he concocted this plan that they would lie. And then so it seems that Abraham here 
has already set the pattern and example for Sarah, and she too is lying to the Lord. But God is good. He says, look, I chose you guys. Yes, you did laugh. Yes, you are lying. Yes, you don't believe. You struggle with unbelief. But yet, I'm going to continue to give you a child. God is a great God. That's what we learn from this part. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And he calls us, he calls you right now to make your frame of reference for everything, the Lord and his word. And this fact should change how we live our lives and how we understand ourselves here in this world. Sarah doubts that God will bring about his plan of salvation. That's really what she's doubting here. Because God had already cho- cho- God had already determined, he had already chosen them, that through him, the nations would be blessed. And we know that according to the New Testament, that this blessing ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus because salvation is preached in his name. And it goes out to both Gentile and Jew. Here, Sarah really doubts that God is going to bring about his plan of salvation. You know, sometimes I think that I doubt in the same ways. Now, I don't have particular revelation in the way that Sarah and Abraham did, so I'm not chosen for my lineage to be a blessing to the world. But I do know that God generally is going to bring people to himself through us sharing the gospel with other people and by us ministering to other people. So you can think of evangelism here. So I understand Sarah, I understand Sarah because sometimes I look at the folks that I'm talking to about Jesus and I'm trying to love them for God's sake. I'm trying to be hospitable to them and trying to preach the gospel to them. But sometimes I do so with a way that says, okay, yep, I've done my part over to you, God. And it's sort of like this fatalistic understanding, you know, okay, God's going to deal with it now. But then, you know, you know, biblically, though, when I compare my own heart to the New Testament, the whole scripture, you know, I got to wonder, like, where's my eager anticipation for God to reap a harvest from what I sow? How does that eager anticipation work its way out in prayer? Where I'm praying and depending, just as uh, Jason Barris, the... Uh, the brother who faithfully brought the word a number of weeks ago, he prayed from Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that God would fulfill every good work that we have, every good intention, every good purpose we have so that the name of Jesus would be glorified. And I find my heart at times really kind of lacking in those types of prayers. You know, I launch it up and that's about it. Without eager anticipation that God will work. Of course, according to his sovereignty, But nevertheless, he will, in fact, work and we are to anticipate it. So when we sow the seed, God's plan of redemption continues to roll on as he's going to bring people to himself. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I mean, who are you guys? Who do you guys want to see become Christians to repent and believe and know the forgiveness of God to know what it's like to be adopted into his family where the father will never betray the son? To have consistent waterfall-like love that just never ends. You know, you, we want this stuff for people, but yet, you know, when it comes to prayer, praying that God would work, when it comes to our eager anticipation, the expectation that God would work, I mean, how does that inform your guys' prayers? Perhaps if you were like me at times, we say, oh, there are a number of things that are too difficult for the Lord. And it's in those instances that we need to Repent of those things and acknowledge what God is teaching Sarah here, that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Well, eventually God moves on. 
He's going to move on to this expansive thing. Actually, both are expansive. You know, here he's basically saying, I'm going to build a people, a nation, a kingdom on you, Sarah and Abraham. So it has to do with God's salvation plan. Uh, the next section here, from 16 to the end, it actually also has to do with God building a people. But here it's talked specifically about what kind of people they ought to be. And that's what's sort of being drawn out here. Look at verse 16. The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So again, he's an excellent, superb host here. He's going with them. You know, he's packing fruits and vegetables and the watermelon and the waters. I'll make sure that you're taken care of as you go on this long journey. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 17 begins with this rhetorical question, right? It might seem confusing. Shall I hide because I'm going to make him into a great nation? So we might respond like, why is God deliberating on whether or not he should show Abraham like he really is sort of in confusion here? He's sort of wishy-washy as if he genuinely doesn't know. That's not a good way to read this, this section here, this question. It's better to understand this text in that God asked the question, knowing that he wants to draw Abraham into his divine counsel because of what he's going to do with him. Right? He's chosen him, it says. He's going to build a nation on him, it says. He's going to be a blessing. The people are going to walk in faithfulness and righteousness and justice. And because of that, I'm going to bring Abraham in. Shall I hide what I'm going to do here? The answer is no. Amos 3, 7 says this, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to the servants, the prophets. Abraham's functioning like a prophet. He's bringing him into this divine counsel. Again, the reason is because, the very reason why he's saying, I am now going to bring him into my, this council, is because God has plans for him. Nations to come, earth blessed because of him. I have chosen this particular man I have elected him by my grace, and he is to, it says there, according to the covenant, command his children and his household after him. See here, God's using Abraham, but he sees the full end, the end there. He's going to command his children and his household after him to keep it, to possess it, to do it, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the promise would be fulfilled. Here the words righteousness and justice. You know they have to do with very much doing or practice. Now again you realize where God is heading. Where the angels are heading. They're heading to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they stand at this place and they look down it says. At Sodom and Gomorrah. Unrighteousness. And God here is saying I'm going to bring Abraham into my council. Because he is my chosen one. And I'm going to make him a righteous man and a righteous people from him. In contrast to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's, he's drawing out this contrast here. 
That's, there's the timing there. He could have revealed this to Abraham at any period of time, but he chooses to do so as he is moving to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, a very unrighteous and very unjust city. So great social oppression is going on there. So as and as he stands looking down on Sodom and Gomorrah, very unrighteous cities, God calls him to righteousness and justice. So righteousness, as I just mentioned here, here specifically, it has to do with doing righteous things or doing just things. Before we saw it, that it was like legal categories that God declares. He imputes righteousness to Abraham because he believes. But here in this text, he's talking about doing what is right, especially social justice. Compared to those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is to be the exact opposite. And we see the lesson here that really comes out as the story goes on. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come out to me. And if not, I will know the, this outcry against the inhabitants of Sodom um, has reached up to God's ears. And they have so fixed God's attention, they've grasped it, that he goes down, it says. And the reason here is to judge, to adjudicate, to determine, to see whether, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. So the outcry against the, 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 the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it rises up to God's ears. And he says, I will go down to determine. He moves to judge and to weigh whether or not the outcry fits the sin. He's going to determine. He hears the outcry and he goes down to, to, to see. That's your great God if you're a Christian here. He could have just from above in the heavens sort of declared what he was going to do. He could have just rained down fire and judgment on the city without having going gone down to see it. But yet he still comes down to see, to assess the situation so that he will know. It's not that he lacks information, but it's that before he goes down, he fully wants to see and to test and to know his people. I will know his judgment here, his justice is informed by his intimate knowledge of everything. We see this in Genesis 3, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God then goes down. He's, he makes himself present with Adam and Eve. He wants to know what's going on. He speaks to them. Cain and Abel, we see something very similar. So thank God his judgment is never hasty. Never hasty. He never sort of flies off the handle. Theologians... Uh, People who study God and study the Bible, they love to exalt the fact that God's justice is always 100% informed by his 100% love and wisdom. He never lacks love and wisdom and knowledge in his judgment. And that's hard for us to grasp here because we so often fly off the handle. Maybe we are, if you guys are prone to flying off the handle, getting angry, right? Your, judge, your justice and your judgment is very limited. It's not always driven by love. It's not always driven by patience. It's not always driven by knowledge and wisdom. It could just be carnality. If you're not prone to flying off the handle, maybe you never fly off the handle. Well, maybe also your justice is not informed by accurate love, knowledge, and wisdom. 
because you don't really know and, and understand and embrace and feel what is going on in the present situation. But for God, though, praise God that he is he, he maintains all of his characteristics at 100 percent capacity all the time. And we never have to wonder, is he not going to get this thing right? But because he, he, he always gets things right. See how this is a great encouragement for us in this life. You learn so much about God. He stoops down in order to lift up here. God is a God who speaks. That's what we learn here. God is a God who cares. We saw this in Hager's episode. He's a knowing and a seeing God. Same thing here. He goes down so that I will know. He's a God who never forgets. So if you guys have ever experienced some sort of social injustice, and I know some of you have to greater or lesser degrees, some of you guys' family members know social injustice to greater or lesser degrees, you can be confident that God will judge and that his justice is informed by his love of you and his knowledge of you and the knowledge of your perpetrators and his complete wisdom. Again, it might not be on your own timing, but God is a God who says, according to Romans, which we, which, uh, you know, the video for the Sunday school class, the equip class that we just went through referenced that God is a God who remembers and a God who takes vengeance on those who do wrong. We therefore aren't to forget it, but we entrust ourselves in the very judgment to God himself so that we would proclaim that he is a God of all glory and that his judgment is always correct. This is also a warning for us, for those of you who know yourself not to be a Christian and you sin. Or those of us who are Christians and we do sin, certainly. And we might want to hide these things from the public view. Given that God is a God who never forgets, this serves here as a warning to those who sin, to us who sin. Because there's nothing that we can hide. We might get away for a year or two or a decade or a lifetime of hiding the things that we do. But believe me, brothers and sisters, friends, God knows exactly what you're hiding. And before the judgment, God will unveil all of these things before you. In an effort for you not to experience that, let me encourage you to turn from your sin and believe. Because God comes down not only to sup with his people here, to experience this relationship, he comes also to lift people up, to encourage weak faith. And where there is no faith, where people recognize, yes, I struggle with not believing, or I struggle with a lack of belief on Sarah's side, but also for those of you who struggle with belief in general, Jesus says, look, you turn and believe in me who I came in flesh and blood that I might die on the cross for sins so that you might know forgiveness. So that you might be free and free of shame and free of guilt and know this type of forgiveness that God is in fact a great God. He knows everything about you, but yet still he comes to die for you and to bring you into his family. And that should boggle your mind. His justice is informed by his knowledge. We also see that his justice informed, is informed by his wisdom. <clears throat> Look at verse 22. This is the last section. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's fascinating that, that it's not been revealed yet that God is going to judge. But Abraham knows what God has come for. 
He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. This is a very fascinating passage. First of all, this can be interpreted in crazy ways, misinterpreted big time, taken out of context. Like if you were just to to look at this section of verses without the stories around it, you might think like God just seems like he's open to a bargain when it comes to his judgment. This is strange. And and then even more distasteful is that he's open to bargaining about his judgment um, by a man, a mere man. I thought this God is perfect in all his ways. And yet he's opening himself up here for this bargain action going on. Is he just a moody God? Maybe one day he thinks he's going to judge and the next day he thinks he's not. And then one can also see that, that Abraham has a better pulse on judgment than God does in terms of when and why. If that is the case, then God therefore lacks wisdom. God's counsel is modified by this mere man, Abraham, as if God is unsure what he's doing and he needs Abraham to sort of give him a hand. Greatness is only over the earth that he created and the womb of Sarah. But when it comes to decision making and judgment and adjudication and determination, you know, he's kind of lacking. The answer is no. God knows exactly what he is doing. Context is key here. Context is key. The scene is tied to the one that comes immediately before it. Where God, who has already chosen Abraham, is already determined to make him into a great nation and brings him into his council. Because he is God's friend. He is a man who's going to teach his future generations to practice righteousness and justice. And this is the moment for Abraham. This is the lesson that Abraham needs to learn. And we see if the chosen leader of God's people, the father of the faith, is or will be an advocate, not only for righteousness, but for the righteous. That's the lesson here that God is wanting him to learn. That this man, this chosen man, and then God's people that come from Abraham, they're not only to be an advocate for righteousness, but for the righteous. What if you find 50? What if you find 40? And you see the attitude of Abraham. You know, he's not coming as if God is a moron. He's coming as if, you know, God is God. He's so deferential. I am but dust and ashes. 
If you find 40, let not the Lord be angry. Let me please speak just this one time. How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? So we should here be shouting and jumping up and down saying, yes, for Abraham, because he's getting God's character here. He's an advocate not only for righteousness, but for the righteous. The Lord agrees, and it says, and the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Certainly, God is not a God who lacks anything. Deuteronomy 32 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So in this particular test, Abraham actually does a decent job requesting pardon for the righteous. But what might be surprising as the next chapter reveals is that God still knows best. So Abraham, in some sense, he gets it wrong when he says, far be it from God for the outcome of the righteous and the wicked to be the same. Far be it from you, God. It's almost like a rebuke in some ways. Not so much a rebuke as in God is getting it wrong, but Abraham thinks that this sort of um, pat answer sort of answers God's wisdom and justice as he judges. God works in this one way. What's interesting is that the story goes on is that, yes, God actually does do that. So Lot will see when he flees Sodom and Gomorrah, he runs to the city called Zoar and Lot asks the angels, do not destroy the city because I will be there. And the angels say, yes, you 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 have what you asked for. He preserves the wicked to preserve the righteous. Interesting. But that's not the only way that God works. And this is kind of what, uh, this is basically what Abraham gets wrong. It's wrong to think that the righteous never experience the same earthly fate as the wicked. It's wrong to think that the righteous never experience the same earthly fate as the wicked. Now, be keep in mind here, that if, so, if, let's say, we experience the righteous and the wicked experience the same things, they might be experiencing for two different reasons. For Sodom and Gomorrah, it might be judgment for their sin because they didn't repent and believe. But why the Lord allows this, let's say, Job, for example, to experience such, uh, apparently, the same things that many others, non-Christians, might experience, you know, there, as I understand the text, it was to declare that God is worthy of glorying in and to show that to Satan, nothing will stop this righteous man who trusts ultimately in me. So it's wrong to think that the righteous never experience the same earthly fate as the wicked, even though the purposes of the fate are different. I got an example here. Daniel, you know, was he or was he not taken away into exile? Experienced the same things as the Israelites. And it was the Israelites who sinned against God, and that's why they went off into exile. Did Daniel experience that too? The answer is yes. He was taken away. He, to some degree, suffered. He witnessed these things. But yet God had very different intentions to him. You think about Joseph, for example. Did he experience a bad fate? I'm sure that other non-Christian people did experience. Yes, he did. But how encouraging is it that God had this massive plan for Joseph. God moves in mysterious ways, and this must be acknowledged. Lot, for, again, to mention this, in the next chapter, God does exactly what Abraham prays for. Uh, Lot retreats to a small city. Small city is preserved for 
uh, lot. Here's another strange way that God works. The Ninevites were exceedingly wicked, known for their brutality. Jonah here thinks that God should destroy them. God says, no, I want you to go and preach the gospel and all of them are going to repent and believe. And he gets angry. Like a little boy throwing a fit, he goes off into the desert, sits under the the, uh, plant and just waits for God to destroy him. And he's hard-hearted there. God knows best here. And then take Jesus suffering the same earthly fate as the criminal right next to him. But yet we all know that God had very different motives for Christ's death. One person put, God's action cannot be reduced to a simple juridical formula or precedent. That's wisdom there. His justice is informed by infinite wisdom. Both Abraham and Job here have something to teach us. Both patriarchal figures, this guy continues to write, Abraham and Job, they reflected openly on the justice of the Lord. So if you read Job, he's reflecting his conversation about what justice is. But then they both ceased. They both stopped after hearing from the Lord. And you know why they ceased? After they heard from God, you don't see Abraham complaining about how his request was not answered. It's because they realized they had no legitimate vantage point from which to govern the moral universe. They realized that they were not God. They had no legitimate vantage point from which to govern the moral universe. But again, if you guys are experiencing some sort of social injustice and you know it, you've gone through it. Perhaps at nighttime, you oftentimes think about it. God is a God who knows and a God who hears. He heard Hagar in the desert and he drew near. Here he goes down to adjudicate so that he will know Unless we be proud and think that the Abraham and his folks, or maybe the future Israelites, have it all together. In Ezekiel 16, God takes them to task because he says that the Israelites were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And their whorings and their idolatrous hearts, they were worse there. And God knows these things and he's going to judge. Chapters 18 and 19 show that the Lord is truly free in his judgments. And that his judgments are inscrutable. If Abraham is to father a heritage that adheres to the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, the question of the righteousness of God's conduct is fundamental. The dialogue says more about the nature of God's justice than the way that Abraham, for example, prays for these people. Friends, God's wisdom is unfathomable. It's something that le- it's something that ought to lead to praise, which is exactly why David read the scripture uh, that he read. Go ahead and turn to Romans eleven. Verse thirty-three. I'll read that again. It says, "Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God." How deep are these things? How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways? For who is there anyone on this earth who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has who has been given who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him? These things come from him. They they find their origin in him and through him. And then to him, there's the purpose 
So you have the origin, you have the manner, and then you have the purpose are all things, everything. Here in the in the uh, in the context of Romans, you have the judge, you have judgment, you have salvation, you have who whom he saves, you have evangelism. All of that goes to the glory of God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God's wisdom is unfathomable. So the question is, do we trust it? It's fascinating that God here hears the outcry, the social oppression that goes on. And he's teaching Abraham to want to be a blessing to the nations. By seeing that social oppression and by identifying with the righteous. It's instructive to us, isn't it? To want to be like God in in that our judgments would be informed by complete love, wisdom and knowledge. That would allow us to look out around the people here in this area as we try and apply this text to ourselves and feel that same thing there. That God hears the outcry of the people, the outcry against others, and he goes down to know and then to act. You know, there's so many things going on today. I was reflecting um, in this last week I was with Louisville. I was reflecting with uh, a friend of mine, my cousin, about how it seems like over the last 10 years, things in the world generally have gotten worse. Most immediately, we can think of, at least in our area, we can think of uh, the immigrants that are being bused to different stations. Now, I'm not here to address uh, policies, immigration policies. We can, at the same time, no matter what you, let's assume that you, let's just say, not assume, let's say that you, you love Obama's policies. Something still needs to be done with these people who are suffering, right? That, to some degree, is social... Uh, I don't quite want to say oppression. I don't want to speak to that necessarily, but there are people who are certainly in need. And let's assume that maybe that you disagree with those Obama's policies. Nevertheless, there are people there who socially need to be helped and cared for and loved. You could take, uh, let's move on to the area of these people who work in the adult entertainment industry. The city of industry is known for these things. You can imagine that people will be flocking from Orange County, different parts of Orange County and L.A., to be serviced by folks who work in these industries. What has happened in their life where they result to that as being the primary means, maybe, for making a living? Where they're using their bodies in ways that God had not intended them to use. And then the men and the women who are both taking advantage of their misfortune and their unfortunate background and their thinking and maybe even partaking in the sinfulness, certainly. How is your thoughts about those couple things informed by righteousness and justice and care and love for the oppressed? Here God is making sure, he's wanting Abraham to have that knowledge that God is a God of justice and righteousness. And all his people down from him would be of the same. And so therefore, when all the world looks at them, they know that is different. Not in what they do. I mean, you guys realize that there are different organizations that could be fighting for the rights of these kind of people and these kind of people, even though they might hate God. So what makes Christianity different, which should make our social awareness and our efforts to reach out to others, what makes it different is the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus. Yes, are there certain things going on socially and ought we to be somehow as individuals 
be reaching out to them? Absolutely. But our answer is so different. Our answer isn't ultimately in policy. Our answer is in the blood of Christ who brings forgiveness of sins. Our answer to those people who are taking advantage of others. Our answer is also the justice of God. And we should say, look, when you stand before God, it will not be a good thing. But you can have forgiveness if you turn from your sins right now. And therefore be saved if you call out on the name of Jesus. You know, there are people who get a little uncomfortable pushing and encouraging church members, I think, to uh, uh, social awareness and to be active and caring for others in the community. I would agree with that if the cross is missing. If the cross is with it, then it actually reflects, reflects biblical principles. The love of Jesus compels us to love others around us. It's kind of natural humanity here. This isn't like missional living. This is just normal Christian humanity where... Even though we have sinned because of Adam and Eve and we don't therefore offer the context, the loving context that God had intended for his people. Yet Christians have the opportunity now to try and live in that direction all because of the blood of Christ. So what is ultimate is I let's say if I were to go down to Murrieta and help folks help the immigrants there or I was to go to the local ship club and to evangelize them, which I'm not necessarily encouraging that you all would do that although for some people it's a very good thing to do um especially depending on what you might struggle with um what encourages me to do that if i were to do that is to say look what is ultimate is not that you change your lifestyle per se in action or that you necessarily would have a full stomach but that's so that you would know that you should find your relationship primarily you should understand yourself to be primarily underneath the lordship of god and when you get that right then all of these other things begin to change so i know of one person who may have recently become a christian and he literally was asking me okay you know jerry so tell me what does this mean for my life and vegas what, what do i do here and then we talked and we talked and, you know, we were thinking about uh, non-Christian rap music because that's he grew up in kind of a, a very rough area. You know, we're talking about Vegas. And then he goes, OK, you know what about what about the adult entertainment industry? You know, I go to Vegas and my friends are doing that. What does that mean for me now as a Christian? And I'm sitting there helping him realize that what this is ultimately is a heart issue. When you get the gospel, you understand why God has made those people not to do that with their bodies, but to worship God with their bodies. By keeping themselves pure and saving themselves for the marriage bed so that they might enjoy sexual pleasure in the right areas that God has given them. So if we are now as individuals to move towards acting like God and caring for humanity in general with the gospel on the forefront of our minds, we need to be thinking eternally about these things and how each of these things get us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, there are so many wonderful things that we can learn here about you. As you are a God who becomes friends with your people, you not only lord over us, or in fact you don't lord over us as, as if you would without love, but yet you are our Lord and that you enter into our situation. You come and eat with us. 
You have a banqueting table laid out for us, and you want us to join you so that you might give yourself to us. How awesome is that? Not only that, but you draw near to your people who are struggling in faith so that you might lift them up and that they might be reminded of these great and magnificent promises that you have given to us. Well, we know, too, that your justice is informed always by your wisdom and your knowledge. So, Lord, as we have the same faith as Abraham, Father, we pray that we would be people known for righteousness and justice, especially as we look out and see Christ on the cross, who is our model. And even though he suffered at at the hands of unrighteous people, yet, Lord, it says that he opened not his mouth. So, Lord, we pray that we would be lambs as we go out and try and help other people. And even when we might experience something like persecution or injustice ourselves, Lord, we pray that we might say that the Lord is in fact the Lord and that we are entrusting ourselves and the final judgment ultimately to God. And as we go out and share the gospel even to death, as the Lord might call, as you might call some of us to do, Father, we pray that we would be a glorious example of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins, recognizing that there is nothing better, even in the midst of suffering, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.